Hey, you guys, it's Miranda. Guess who's back on the show today? Catherine Robb, whom I'm hoping you remember from season one, episode nine, entitled Fighting for Fairness. Catherine's an attorney and child advocate, and she's back to give us updates on the fight to improve state statute of limitations laws, especially the New York Child Victims Act, which Catherine worked really hard to help pass, and she was even personally thanked by Governor Cuomo for her work. We're also going to talk in detail about the recent changes to Title IX put in place by Betsy DeVos that make it harder for victims of sexual assault on campus to get justice. And we touch on the added risks the pandemic poses for victims of child abuse who are stuck at home and what we can do about it. It's actually an exciting time for this episode to come out because just the day before yesterday, Catherine texted me the news that New York State passed an extension to the one-year window in the Child Victims Act, meaning that the statute of limitations is now lifted for past child sexual abuse victims until August of 2021, a full year after the original window is supposed to close. So let me tell you why this matters. It generally takes a long time for child sexual abuse victims to even understand what happened to them, let alone gather the strength to speak up about it and get help and decide to take legal action. For most survivors, this doesn't happen until they're in their 50s. Yet in New York, they formerly had only until age 21 before the statute of limitations made it impossible for them to press charges in criminal court or sue in civil court. So this new law not only changes the new age limit to 55 for new cases, it also gives past victims this window of time to take action. But my friends, there is still a problem in New York and the many other states who have enacted these windows, which is that most victims don't know about these changes to the law, and they may not know until it's too late if ever, because it just seems like the information isn't getting to them. And sadly, these windows are going to pass and many victims will never have the chance to seek justice and reveal the child abusers still among us. So I'm asking you for a call to action. Will you please share the podcast and follow my websites and social media accounts where I'll be posting articles and quotes from the podcast. Share these posts, spread the word so that the people in your world many of whom you probably don't even know carry this history, can find out what their rights are. And it's not just for them either, it's for every child who does not get abused because another offender was taken off the street or added to the public. Let's get this done together. And finally, before we get started, I made an embarrassing flub during the interview when I brought up Title IX. I called it Title 19. Ugh, what can I tell you? Um... So I decided that I'm just going to read you the Title IX federal law. This is what it states. Quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, unquote. And that includes by being sexually harassed or assaulted. Okay, let's get started. Hey, can we talk for a second? So you've heard me advertise Buffy bedding products and Instacart on the podcast, right? And you probably think I'm earning a little money to help with expenses and compensate me for my time and energy. Well, you would be wrong. While I'm very pleased that my coaching business has been going well, thanks largely to the podcast, 
So far, I have only made one sale on my affiliate products, and that was from good friends of mine. I don't make a dime unless someone makes a purchase. My guess is that some of you are using Instacart for grocery delivery, or at least thinking about it, and of course, it's really the perfect time right now. Maybe a Buffy eco-friendly allergen-free pillow or set of sheets would make a great Father's Day gift. So can I ask you a favor? Can you just go through the podcast links when you order from Instacart or Buffy? They're easy to find. They're right on the Truth and Consequences and Second Wound website landing pages or the podcast show notes, which are on the bottom of every episode. You can also click the donate button if you prefer to just send a few bucks my way. Every little bit makes a difference. And I would love a little love from you guys. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I'm a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound, Coping with Family While Healing from Abuse or Assault. Catherine Robb is a lawyer, legislative advocate, and law instructor who has been fighting to pass meaningful child sex abuse legislation for 14 years in multiple jurisdictions. As an outspoken survivor of child sexual abuse, Catherine continues to use her voice to implement common sense legislative change. Catherine worked closely with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, his staff, and New York State legislators to pass the New York Child Victims Act. After a 12-year hard-fought battle, the bill was signed into law on February 14, 2019. And today, Catherine will update us on how the law has been affected by the pandemic. Catherine holds a master's in clinical counseling and applied psychology, and she is the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy. She works with the Mass Kids Enough Abuse Campaign's Training the Trainer program, and she's a school basketball coach and a mother of five who lives with her wife and children in the Boston metro area. Welcome back, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you actually have the distinction of being my very first returning guest. <laughs> Um, You came on the podcast in season one, episode nine, and we talked about statute of limitations and the epidemic of child sexual abuse. I got a lot of great feedback from your appearance. And I'm, yeah, and I'm happy to say it launched a friendship between us that has been a real source of support and enjoyment for me. Oh, well, it is mutual. Thank you. Yeah. Um, All right, so to get us started, Catherine, could you give us an update on the Child Victims Act? Uh, maybe just a quick background for those who haven't heard the last episode about it. And and then you could tell us how it's been affected by COVID-19 and what steps have been taken to address that. Sure. Um, so the Child Victims Act is um, a new piece of legislation that was signed into law on um, February 14th in 2019. And it essentially... Um, extends the statute of limitation uh, so that period of time which a survivor of child sexual abuse can file to age 55. Wonderful. And it also opened a one-year window, um, and that one-year window opened on August 14th and will close on August 13th, 2020 at, uh, you know, 11, uh, 11.59 so, um, and um, so essentially, we I fought to pass that law 
for about 13 years with some really super terrific uh, legal minds and brave advocates and survivors. Mm-hmm. Most notably, uh, my hero, uh, Margaret Markey, who was the assemblywoman who really championed that bill. Um, just uh, an amazing amazing force who fought year after year after year. And it was a battle. Uh, It was very much a David and Goliath win. Uh, And it wasn't until we really uh, had control of the Senate that we were able to pass this really important piece of legislation. Um, And working with Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, his secretary, Melissa DeRosso, and um, at the time, uh, his uh, chief legal counsel, Alfonso David, who's now the president of HRC. They were just terrific to work with, and um, as well as senators and uh, assembly folks in both chambers. So, um, so yeah. that was a huge win, a very oh, exciting enormous, moment. Enormous yeah. win. Um, you know, it's funny, just a little side story. My mother a couple of weeks ago after uh, Governor Cuomo was giving one of his uh, daily pressers and she called me and said, is he really like that? <laughs> and, <laughs> We're all getting to know him I now, know, right? everyone's getting to know him. I said, yes, mom, he is <laughs> that authentic, real, um, great leader, just a really a, a great leader and great staff. So it, it was really an honor to work with him. That's wonderful. And his staff. So, yeah, so big accomplishment. And then, you know, we get to um, the winter months and COVID hits in March. And as we all know, all health breaks loose. And the courts in New York, like many jurisdictions, are closed. And that window, that one-year window, was effectively uh, reduced to mm-hmm. probably a nine or ten-month window, um, which could prevent some people from being able to file theoretically. Exactly, and you know, I think the thing that most legal minds are concerned about is that. Um, it, it wasn't, the window is not a statute of limitations. It is, it has a start time and an end time in the legislation. So, you know, it could be argued by, you know, big institutions that keep fighting us, whether it be the Catholic Church or Boy Scouts of America. Mm-hmm. It could be argued that um, that was it, essentially. Um, it started and just this to time be and clear, end. Catherine, in case people don't know exactly what we're talking about, that window, first of all, the statute of limitations has changed to 55 for people going forward for new mm-hmm. cases mm-hmm. where um, people are sexually abused. They have until they're 55 to file a lawsuit mm-hmm. against their abuser or the institution. And it used to be age 22, correct? Up yeah. until age 22? It, it, uh, it, was, um, three, it was three years from majority, so age 21. 21. Okay. And then, um, and then so this window allows people to sue who do not fall into that uh, statute of limitations. Right. So the extension part of the legislation to age 55, that's prospective. That's Mm -hmm. for prospective harms. Mm -hmm. The window essentially allows those survivors from the past 
to have their day in court, to identify their perpetrator, to hold the institution accountable, and fundamentally to make children safer. Because when we're more Mm -hmm. transparent, when we hold institutions accountable and we hold, you know, perpetrators accountable, we essentially make kids safer. So, yeah, that that's the two parts of of the Child Victims Act. So it's sort of restoring this, it's restoring this opportunity and and the ability for survivors to seek justice just for one year. And now it's been shortened by the COVID pandemic. Correct. And I think the other thing that's happened as well is that, that because of the social distancing and stay at home orders, which of course they're necessary in a, a frightening time like this, Mm-hmm. But because of that, many, many survivors have lost their support system. They, especially older survivors, um, this pandemic has disproportionately affected minorities and low income, yes. including those survivors, uh, their ability to have something as simple as the internet. Oh, they yeah. relied on going to libraries or coffee houses, that type of thing. That's all that's lost for them, as well as just the ability to go and sit with family members, um, friends, all of that is lost. And so different levels of support. Okay, so and you're pointing out that all of these elements come into play for people who are considering or might find out about the window or, or they would need these support steps and even just the internet to have the ability to look into it and to find an attorney and file exactly exactly so really the 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 heart and the spirit and the content of the bill was truncated um and so what happened was a couple of weeks ago governor cuomo signed an executive order i believe it was 202.29 and basically what he did was he extended Extended the order until January 14th. The window. Okay. Yes. Now, bravo to the governor. Once again, mm-hmm. he did yeah. the right thing. Our concern is that although he did the right thing, he may have unintentionally caused more problems because we fear that it is might be an overstep of his of his constitutional emergency powers. So, so because that of that, we're asking the legislature to essentially codify his his executive order, which is great in spirit and in content. We're just worried about we're worried about the powers. Okay. But most importantly, what we would like the legislature to do in New York, and we're working with uh, Senator Brad Hoylman and Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, both spearheading another bill called the CVA extension bill. Hmm. And essentially what that is doing is that is adding another year to the window to, to really reflect what's happening in other states. So we are really pushing for the legislature to act now. And they go back into session next week, I believe. I, I don't know if it's certain, but I think that's what they're looking to do is to go into back into session next week um, a- after Memorial Day weekend. And what we're really hoping that they will do is pass the extension because 
that would eliminate our concern about the executive order from Governor Cuomo. And it would also give victims more time because of COVID. But also, it would allow New York to be a better bill because in terms of windows across the country, New York is really at the middle of the class on on windows in terms mm-hmm. of how we would grade them. Yeah. Yeah, I read about I read the um, opinion piece that you wrote in the New York Daily News where it described just that. It was entitled What New York Still Owes Those Abused as Children. Governor Cuomo took a big step now go further. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming the worst case scenario as you imagine it is that if someone filed after the August 14th date mm-hmm. and won their suit that it could be appealed based on questioning his uh, executive order and and its legality exactly right okay we are concerned that he may have exceeded his emergency power and you know what big institutions that are fighting these lawsuits all over the country yeah they manage oh and they will fight a missing comma in you know excuse me they will they have a lot to lose right and you know they they just they will fight this tooth and nail and they will fight any missing word or comma or anything Mm. to stop this so if we have concerns about constitutionality it needs to be addressed yes let's Mm -hmm. let's not do this to survivors they fought so hard for this yes and let's not do this to them for them to have concern about this or have to put up a second or third fight it's just not fair to them exactly and the more i learn about the system the more it just seems like it's tipped in every way toward offenders and institutions that have offenders in them and for this you know this hard fought battle for justice to be achieved and then you know have it threatened because of this technicality would just be a travesty right especially when the governor is so well-intentioned and he is clearly a governor that is at the forefront he's a leader especially Mm -hmm. when he's trying to lead and give survivors justice it would be a shame for victims to have to go through another fight because i do believe these larger powerful institutions would fight this let me ask you i have been concerned that not enough victims know about this look back window. Um, just anecdotally, you know, I have a, a pretty large online presence and I try to keep uh, my audience informed about changes in their own states. But I've had conversations online with many survivors who had no idea that their states have a look back window right now um, that they would take advantage of potentially and they didn't know until I told them. Right, right. Is that a concern you have as well? Yeah, it, it is a concern. And many attorneys are putting out ads in different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's missed in this, this day and age. People, sure. you know, people don't sit in front of the TV the way they used to. So, yeah, it is it is a big concern of ours. I would tell all of your readers to go to the Child USA website. Okay. They can also go to my website, which is childusadvocacy.org. Mm-hmm. And um, the Child USA website is really a, a think tank and the leading think tank, I believe, in the country, um, okay. run by the esteemed uh, Professor Marcy Hamilton at the University of Pennsylvania. And they update that site 
every day. I mean, Excellent. it is it is a true think tank of um, what's going on all over the country, legally, medically, what's happening all over the country. So really helpful. So I, I would urge your readers to go to childusa.org. Great. I'm going to share that in the show notes and I'm going to mm -hmm. hop on there mm -hmm. a lot more often myself. So thank you. Sure. All right. So anything else you want to add, add to that conversation before we move on? Um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're really hopeful that we're going to be able to get the extension passed because like, like I said, compared to other states, New York is really, you know, it has about a B minus grading is what we gave New York on that. Last year, we had multiple states pass two and three year windows. Great. There are three states that have come back and passed additional windows. California being one of those passed a second window with a three year window. And both Hawaii and Delaware have passed additional windows. So really, New York is they're not at the front of the class on this and mm -hmm. they like to be at the front of the class on this. <laughs> so we do hope that the New York state legislature can get this done. Great. This okay. year. So fingers crossed. Yes. So let's shift gears a little bit. I would like to ask you to talk to us about the potential effects that this lockdown um, and this stay at home kind of precautions that people are taking during the pandemic, what kind of effects that can have on kids who are being abused, who are being sexually abused at home right now. And I just wanted to reference the piece that you wrote for the publication Verdict in early April. And I want to quote you from that. You said, kids who are stuck at home during this uncertain time may have bigger problems in boredom and lack of access to healthy meals. The research tells us that about 90% of children who are sexually abused know their abuser. And of those, the vast majority are family members, parents, step-parents, grandparents, uncles, and older siblings. So for the child experiencing this type of abuse, being out of the home regularly is a version of safe and necessary distancing. To those children, the home is infected. School, athletics, and extracurricular activities become the layers of personal protective equipment. Without those protective activities, children are, greater, are at greater risk. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about your concerns for children's safety during this time. Well, I think if you look at the data, you look at the research, and you know that so many children are abused and neglected in the home, and if you look to what we're going through as a planet and the stress that this is having on individuals, adults and parents, whether it's the stress of someone being sick with this COVID-19, uh, someone passing away, losing a job, financial concerns, uh, health concerns, having kids at home, all of that, all of the ways that COVID-19 have just heightened the level of stress. Our concern is, is that these kids that A, are in now this like, petri dish of heightened bubbling stress, right? Mm -hmm. And also cannot get out. They can't be in the eyes of those other, what I would call sort of safety nets, teachers, coaches, administrators, um, after school care folks, uh, mm -hmm. nurses, all of those people 
are not in really in the child's life the way they used to be. So all of those additional layers of protection are not there, coupled with the fact that the kids, you know, children are now in this very tense and stressful situation at home. And, you know, we have a lot of concerns about kids being in that situation. Um, and I know just as a survivor myself, my abuse was in the home and really my escape was school, academics, and, and the game of basketball. Um, mm -hmm. Just, it really gave me safety in an escape from that tension under normal conditions. Now yeah. we're in a pandemic, so we're really concerned. And I know uh, Child Protective Services all over the country, there's a lot of concern about this and that we don't see a lot of reports on child sexual abuse right now or neglect and abuse, physical and ne neglect and abuse. And we're not seeing a lot of reports because it's not happening. We just, all those people that are mandated reporters that typically report are not there for kids yeah. so we're pretty concerned about it mm -hmm. understandably yeah um so what can be done about it if anything well i think probably first and foremost is paying attention to who what folks have their eyes on kids even remotely right mm -hmm. um and I think I, I think I wrote in my piece that, you know, when when kids are picking up lunches in public schools, breakfasts or lunches, because they're being offered in, in many large cities, because, of course, many, especially low income families rely on those meals for their kids. Mm -hmm. um, so if we can have more folks there to really just keep an eye out on kids, I know that s social workers um, across the country are trying to check in remotely more, pay attention to, you know, body language, what's going on behind the screen kind of stuff. Mm. Um, Good. They have their hands full. They really yeah. have their hands full. And, you know, I, I know that departments of uh, family services or Department of Children's Services, all depending on the jurisdiction, they are, they're still doing home visits. Um, many are remote, but I think in cases of severe abuse and neglect, they're doing home visits with protective equipment. Wow. Um, that's great. But, yeah. but yeah, it must be all an added burden on a system mm -hmm. that's already so overburdened. Exactly. And I think, you know, Miranda, just being aware that this is an, an increased stressful time for folks. Mm -hmm. And also just being aware that kids are in danger at home. Yeah. And, and I think just, you know, knowledge is power. And to sort Agreed. of step back and say, wait a minute, there, there's another harm here. Not just the harm that kids aren't getting nutritious meals, right? Mm -hmm. There's the harm of kids being at greater risk at home. Exactly. And this is something that we need to open our eyes to pandemic or no pandemic. It's it's really such a taboo subject. The more I learn and the more I hear from individuals about their own experiences that never got reported, mm -hmm. the more I just want to open the world's eyes to it. And I do come up against plenty of people not wanting to publish or hear about or discuss this taboo subject because mm -hmm. it is so unpleasant but mm -hmm. it's unpleasant because 
it's destructive and that's why we need to address it. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that it is, the more unpleasant it is, the more we need to talk about it. Exactly. You know, that's, that's the way I think about it. And, you know, I, I know just from my own personal experience that it's really hard when you, when you suffer abuse in the family by a family member to point the finger and speak up. It's really That's hard right. because essentially what you're doing is your family becomes both the victim and the villain. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, really hard for the survivor in that predicament because you're indicting your family. Um, but the truth has to prevail because if we don't point this out, this is, you know, going to be this continued ongoing ugly secret that, that harms kids year after year after year we have to talk about it we have we to address it and i think yeah. a lot of people just assume oh the home is safe yeah mm, no the home isn't always safe um there may be good people in the home but not necessarily all good people in the home right um, and families are complicated i mean that's one mm -hmm. thing that i say to my clients is that it doesn't mean because there was abuse in the home and because there was neglect in seeing and rooting out that abuse, it doesn't mean that your family is all bad or that you didn't get anything good from that family. Mm -hmm. And that can be confusing for people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like if you look at a family, they can look and be fine in certain ways and this can still be going on mm -hmm. behind the scenes. And the same would be true in any other institution, right? I mean, the yeah. Catholic Church has quite a stain on its its institution right now. I went to a Catholic school for 12 mm -hmm. years. I had a wonderful experience. Really? So there, wow. were, there were some, you know, really great things that happened to me, mm -hmm. especially my high school experience. Um, but as we all know, and Spotlight uh, made this clear for all of us, that yeah. um, there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on in that institution as well. Heck you yeah. know, so you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, so. it's a good parallel. Right? Yeah. yeah, and I'm, you know, I would encourage my listeners too, to just acquaint yourselves with the signs of child abuse and child sexual abuse and do keep an eye out for the people that you know um, and we all do have the ability to call our state's version of child protective services if we feel like there's potential mm -hmm. danger there for someone yeah you know I just was asked um, a question um, for for another publication and and the question was <clears throat> what would you say to you know, the little you back when mm -hmm. you were being abused, you know, what, what piece of advice would you give? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And my response was, I would tell that little girl that if it doesn't feel right, it ain't. And to trust your gut and to also know that you're not alone. That's what we need to share with with kids and also with caretakers that if it doesn't feel right, if, if yeah. in your gut, something is a little off. So we need to teach that method, but we also need to practice that method, that, yeah, that way exactly. of being, right? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thank you. So you referenced the fact, and I 
I also talked about it in my intro that you, you know, yourself experienced child sexual abuse in your home with your older brother. Mm-hmm. And so you yourself have been able to access the Child Victims Act. And I'd love you to just tell us whatever you feel comfortable with about that. Sure. Um, so I, I, di- I did commence a lawsuit against um, my oldest brother. And that was actually filed on August 14th. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm standing up for that little girl. And that little girl and the pain that she experiences lives in this adult woman every single day. You know, it's interesting. Folks that haven't experienced abuse or don't have an understanding or any education around it, I think the focus is always on sort of the actual, the physical harm, right? Uh, and there okay. are so many layers of psychological harm that stay with survivors their entire life. So and true. It, and they, they manifest in, in post-traumatic stress. And I, I still battle it. I battle mm-hmm. it. Uh, I, actually, just yesterday, I had a, a little panic attack over something pretty minor, absolutely related to uh, the the abuse, mm. and you know I feel like I'm relatively a strong woman, but it 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 knocked me over for a little bit yesterday. Sure. So there are all these little things that folks don't quite understand that get triggered. Is it a smell? Is it um, you know seeing something, hearing something? Um, having to do something, having not to do something, mm-hmm. you know, little things that can just trigger and that constantly sort of, um, you know, sort of reinflict some measure of that, um, that pain and suffering that you went through at the time you were going through the actual physical abuse itself. And exactly. I think it's really hard for folks to understand that um, mm-hmm. when they think about the effects of, of abuse uh, on children. Yeah, if I could just throw out an example, I mean, I've heard, this hasn't necessarily been my experience, but other survivors talk about how the pandemic is re-traumatizing in certain ways, mm-hmm. just being told you have to stay here, you can't leave, something mm-hmm. like that. Or the idea of having a mask over your face can feel stifling in a way that triggers that mm-hmm. abuse again. So that's just an example of what you're mm-hmm. talking about of everyday things that can bring back this thing that is no matter how much you work on it, and I would encourage everyone to get whatever form of counseling they find helpful, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's always going to be scars. There's always going to be remnants there at the mm-hmm. very least. Yeah, and I think, I mean, simple isolation and restriction yeah. can make people feel alone. And for survivor, for survivors who have lived with a secret most of their lives mm. alone, it brings you back to that space of, I'm all alone, I'm by myself, and no one will believe me or understand. Wow. I, and it, I, I, I think that I worry for a lot of survivors um, that perhaps are not practicing the best self-care or, or are unable to practice the best self-care. I worry about them during this time because it, it really can be, it can be triggering and it can just 
you know, I almost hate the word triggering because as if it just brings you back to this one point in time where it's really about, it's about who you are. It's, it's a part of your fabric of your being. Okay. You know, one, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, survivors are forever changed by this. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly I feel that way. And yeah, it's not you know. just one moment or one aspect of you. Mm-hmm. And it can saying? just yeah exactly so it can just bring you back to oh yeah there that is in me again feeling isolated alone that kind of thing right yeah I, I that resonates for me actually now yeah. that you say that and I think that a lot of survivors will experience you know maybe heightened anxiety heightened depression you know mm-hmm. more post traumatic stress related type of uh, events in their life during this time. Yeah. So do you have suggestions for survivors and, and maybe there's techniques that you use for yourself or um, what are your thoughts about that? What would you share with other survivors who are struggling? Um, well, first and foremost, I would really encourage survivors to continue to see their therapist via phone, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever it is. I agree. I think, I think you know, just having a, someone really in your corner uh, with experience with trauma and post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. I think is really important. And I think, um, and perhaps this may, maybe this goes for everyone, but I think there's something to be said for keeping routines. Yeah. What time you eat, what time you exercise, you know, like make your bed every morning, you know. Things oh, yeah, that, that that's can, been so helpful to me. Right, that can just keep you feeling like you're in some sort of norm, normalcy. Um, structure, I yeah, think, is Structure really and routines, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, physical care, eating well, um, mm-hmm. you know, l- certainly limit alcohol consumption and mm-hmm. perhaps even limit caffeine and getting exercise, uh, yard work, riding a bike, walking. And then the other thing I've been telling folks and to do is to limit your exposure to the news. Just oh, turn it I off. I needed to do that. Yeah. Um, so infuriating slash terrifying. Mm-hmm. I think if you can limit your exposure to the news, just you know what, if something really big is happening, we're going to all find out, you know, soon. So it's going to show up in an email or something. Um, I think also staying connected with families and friends as much as you can through phone calls and emails and Zoom and FaceTime. Yes. And I'm a big proponent of meditation. I, I meditate almost every single morning and every evening. There's mm-hmm. lots of great apps out there that can help folks. Um, calm. Classes online, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Calm, Headspace, 10% oh, yeah. Happier. Mm-hmm. There's lots of guided meditations on YouTube. Um, the other great thing that for we're... for the middle of the night when you can't sleep. That's oh, my totally. recommendation. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we're doing, at least in my house, is we've um, volunteered for what's called the uh, Neighborhood Brigade. And we've been doing um, some shopping for elderly and immune compromised folks. Wonderful. And so I think just, I don't know, if, if you can volunteer, I know that, um, I believe it's the, v, the VA has a pen pal buddy program. So I think just trying to do good for other people can really help your uh, mental health and self-care. Absolutely. I think that's always yeah. the case and especially needed right now when so many people need our help and mm-hmm. attention. Um, so yeah. just circling back a little bit, 
I would love to ask you what it is that you're looking to get from your own lawsuit. Uh, probably uh, more than anything else is accountability. That's um, so important. Mm -hmm. I don't think um, an apology is forthcoming. I'm mm -hmm. not sure how uh, how how much that would change. Um, but I think uh, just accountability, um, a wrong was done and it needs to be righted as, as much as it can be. And it's, of course, you know, hard to do because you can't completely take back and fill what was taken from you. You just can't. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this is what the law does, right? The law yeah. tries its best to make people as whole as it can and you know it it cannot always do that um in many ways it feels as if i was harmed and and lost a limb or have you know significant permanent injury and you know if it's a car accident or uh, you know any sort of other tort where someone is hurt by someone's negligence or battery or what it, whatever it may be the law does its best to make people whole and mm -hmm. um, of course you know i don't believe that survivors can completely be made whole but it's it's really about accountability it's about justice and accountability well said um i think that for survivors and that's most of us who don't get accountability mm -hmm. it is a huge additional layer of injury mm -hmm. and so yeah. That's why it's so important that we have access to justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about think about if you were able as as the child being sexually assaulted for me weekly, um, being able to stand up and say uh, no, stop, and be able being able to stop it and being mm -hmm. able to say this is wrong, you're wrong, and um, this is not right, and you know, a lot, that's, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. And, after the fact. I mean, of course, again, we, we can't be made completely whole, but it, you know, again, the law does the best it can in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, all right. So I have another topic mm -hmm. that I would love to talk with you about today, and that's the recent changes that have been put into effect spurred by Betsy DeVos Oi. Uh, on <laughs> Title 19. And I'll just run through a little bit. Ironically, well, I don't know if it's ironic, but interestingly, <clears throat> these changes are set to go into effect August 14th, 2020. Mm. So I'm just going to run through the major points yep. uh, about these changes, and then we can talk about it. So sure. Colleges in situations where a student comes forward and says that they've been sexually assaulted, Colleges are now can mandate live hearings in which lawyers or representatives cross examine both parties. Um, they are allowed to raise the evidentiary standard from a preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing. Mm -hmm. uh, the definition of sexual harassment will be narrowed so that only that which is, quote, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, unquote, warrants investigation. Um, assaults that are alleged to take place off campus in apartments and during school trips or study abroad would not be included, uh, not be addressed by the school. Mm -hmm. 
and accused students have a right to appeal. Now, um, one positive change is that dating violence and stalking would now be added to the kinds of offenses that schools must respond to. So there is a lawsuit being filed by the, by the ACLU on behalf of four advocacy groups. And the ACLU asserts that these changes in Title IX will make it more difficult for victims to continue their educations, that the changes create a higher standard for sexual discrimination complaints than allegations of racial, national origin, and disability complaints, and that schools are not set up for this formal adjudication process. Um, and finally, it allows them to ignore assaults committed off campus. Mm-hmm. So given all of this, um, let's just get right to the heart of it, which is what will these changes make the experience like for a college student as young as 18 years old who's been traumatized by sexual assault? What are your thoughts on that? Well, other than it just so pisses me off, to be honest with you, yeah. the whole thing. Um, and let us not forget who appointed uh, DeVos, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, a man who openly said he would grab women's genitalia. So, um, yes, our president. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I'm outraged. I I also think it's, it's a very tricky thing because it feels like the system has been flipped on, on its head. And now it, the victim feels like the perpetrator, (laughs) Wow. You know, okay. and it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, the very fact that the ACLU is filing lawsuit against them is like, that says a lot because they're usually backing up the rights of defendants, right? Yeah. I think that says a lot there. Um, Great point. You know, so I think, I think, you know, obviously I'm deeply concerned and I think that it, these changes, you know, just profoundly weaken Title IX in this regard for, you know, sexual sexual abuse on campus. And what survivor um, is going to want to come forward knowing they're going to have a live hearing, yeah. you know? And, and I mean, it's just really clear to me that the, um, that, you know, the, this, these changes are to, are perpetrator friendly and not victim friendly, I guess is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it's, it's just really concerning to me, especially when the data out there is that there are very few false accusations of this. Well, exactly. Um, yeah, I'll throw out there that uh, <clears throat> Rain reports that the majority of sexual assaults are not reported to the police and that out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, only 230 are reported, and that means that's three out of four that go unreported. Mm-hmm. And as far as convictions, one out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, sorry, as far as convictions, out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 955 perpetrators will walk free. Walk free. Yep. So it doesn't seem to me like the issue is that we need to give more power to potential perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Um And on that note, I'm going to, if you can bear it, I'm going to quote Betsy DeVos. She (laughs) says, (laughs) she says, I think that in order to ruin someone's life, 
by expelling them from school. There has to be a process like this. It shouldn't be easy. And so what do you say to those who say this law gives the accused the right to cross-examine victims, thus restoring their due process under the law? I think they have plenty of due process. And Mm -hmm. I think... um, I think I read that quote somewhere, um, but I think again, what we're doing is um, we're turning the perpetrator into the victim by giving them greater rights here. And mm-hmm. it's so clear to me that this is going to chill the amount of of people that will come forward and say I was sexually assaulted or raped on campus or at a Which campus is event. Just- tragic and scary and outrageous. Um, I've never honestly understood why colleges even have jurisdiction over sexual assault and harassment crimes. Well, they don't, they don't have, they don't have jurisdiction criminally. This is just about whether or not we expel someone from the school. I see. Right. So this is, I mean, basically title nine is, you know, equality for 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 all genders basically that's right. what it's about right including the right to not be sexually assaulted harassed all all of those things that they have to respond in an appropriate manner I see. and and so you know it's it's really very different and you know i've i've often talked to high school seniors who are going off to college um and, you know, what we do is we go right to the websites of all the colleges and we look at their Title IX coordinator and how are they educating their students and what's the process and response and all of that. And, you know, one of the things I say all the time is go to the police, right? Because okay. really the crime part is about going to the police. Of course, easier said than done. Of course. And right. that sets you up for potentially, you know, just being re-injured. But I, I do want to follow up on that because mm-hmm. I think the reason that I I misunderstood that was because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like the police do generally get involved. Well, they can't get involved until the, a report has been filed. Okay. So 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 will I I guess I'm I guess I'm a little confused about it. I mean, do, will the police generally respond to that kind of thing? Will they respond to an on-campus assault or will they tend to defer to the college? I think it depends on on the on the school, the security there at the school, the policies, the relationship with local law enforcement and the particular school, the history, you know, all okay. of those things. But I mean, you know, unfortunately, uh, folks that are sexually assaulted have to be a squeaky wheel. And that is not at all the result of being sexually assaulted. Most most survivors um don't want to talk about it, want to, um, don't want to stand on the rooftops and, and shout it out. I mean, it's traumatic. It's, um, there's a lot of self-blame too. What did I do to to lead it on or contribute somehow or not fight back, which is Mm -hmm. a completely natural response actually. Right. And think about this. So now, now they know that they're going to have to have a public hearing. It's going to be more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's going What's going to happen is that lots of victims are going to say, um, "I don't want to do this anymore," 
right? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to be re-victimized, right? Yep. They're going to yeah. think twice about coming forward. Now, if they go to the police as well as go to the administrators at the school, the Title IX coordinator or the president or the, whoever they, they go to, and they go to the police as well, and then they they say, well, this is just way too much. I It's going to be videotaped. You know, it's going to be a live mm. recording. Um, it's awful. And, yeah, this higher burden of proof, um, this is going to make them say, I don't want to do it. Now, and the perpetrator can hire a lawyer to cross-examine you? Exactly. So, re- again, this is why I'm saying it, it really flips the victim-perpetrator on its head, that dynamic. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing is what's going to happen is, you know, with, with false claims is a lot of times you hear, well, they recanted. Well, they didn't recant because it didn't happen. They recanted because they're so overwhelmed and afraid of this whole process or afraid of the perpetrator. Right. Yeah. So, and sometimes they're pressured to recant. Like the uh, series Unbelievable yeah. showed an example of that. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And just, you know, I think just. What I would like to say is that a f- false accusation, the way they record the data, doesn't mean that it was a lie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It could have just meant that someone said, I don't want to go forward anymore, or even perhaps the, the police and the DA say we don't have enough details. Now, <laughs> this might be a whole other podcast, but let us not forget that oftentimes when folks are traumatized like that after being sexually assaulted, what happens with all the stress hormones is it's hard for them to pull up detail. Yeah. It's hard for them to share specific, like what time was it? When did you tell someone, you know, all of that stuff because of how the body responds to stress and, you know, the whole science of traumatology, it affects memory and it really shuts people down so oftentimes the lack of detail is not because it didn't happen it's because this the survivor is in a state of shock and is still being affected so there's all of that as well there's also sometimes law enforcement might ask for times and details and um a victim might give out as close as they can estimate and then go back and amend it later. And that can be seen as changing a story. Um, And also, I mean, I'm sure a lot of law enforcement have the best intentions, but they're also probably not well-educated on the topic, which they Mm -hmm. should be, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now here's another real tough statistic for your listeners. Most of the data says that only about 10% report to the police. So if it's only 10% reported, then really then what's the real number on falsely reported yeah right you can't you can't include that data right Mm -hmm. so so another thing i've always wondered about is don't colleges essentially have a conflict of interest in investigating and taking action in cases of sexual assault and harassment because they don't want those numbers to be reported as high Mm mm-hmm um, I would say that there is an inherent conflict there because essentially what they're doing is they're giving a bad grade to themselves. Exactly. Right? So right. They're, they're putting, you know, a lot of bad grades. Now, under the Cleary Act, f- federal statute, they have to report all serious crimes. 
that all that data goes to the Department of Education. Department of Edu- Education republishes all that data and statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So along with that, it, you know, under the Clery Act, they're supposed to report. So I guess the question becomes, do they report? Is it a serious crime or not? There's a lot of conversation around that. But yeah, I would agree, Miranda. I think that... Um, I think that there is an inherent conflict of interest in that because in some ways it's, you know, the fox watching the hen house kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me there needs to be some kind of independent body there. Right. Um, and that also the, the Title IX coordinator at, at many schools, that's a, a secondary part of their job or a secondary job for them, you know. Oh, okay. Um, Wow. You know, all depending on the school. Like some schools, you know, larger schools um, have, you know, a, a whole department on this, but some other schools don't. They have, you can't even figure out who the Title IX coordinator is. And by law, mm. by the way, you should, students should be able to find that information out very easily on websites, on, on the college yeah. website. Well, it speaks to how much importance we place on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, one last aspect of this, of these new rules, um, mm-hmm. is that it's been pointed out that black students and other marginalized groups on campus are going to be hurt even more by these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, like anything else, I think that um, black and brown folks um, are, are always disproportionately negatively impacted. Mm-hmm. Um and um, so I, I certainly see it happening in this regard as well, in terms of Title IX and the changes. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of data out there on um, not just gender around around sexual assault, but race mm-hmm. uh, and sexual assault and who is to be uh, believed and, and not believed and taken seriously or not taken seriously. And clearly, um, this affects uh, black and brown folks um, disproportionately. Um, and yeah. I also, you know, I, we hear about the angry black woman. If uh, a black woman speaks up, she's suddenly just an angry black woman and not a legitimate human being who's speaking about a wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of that very stereotype. st- stereotypes, you know, implicit bias. Yeah. Uh, it's all of that. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah. And it's something that's being, I hope, highlighted, unfortunately, and tragically, because it's also this pandemic is affecting Mm -hmm. black and brown people disproportionately as well. And when they speak up to get help, they're turned away more. Um, We know that Mm -hmm. minority women have a higher mortality rate during childbirth. I mean, it's really just, it's a travesty. Well, you know, (laughs) Maybe this is an over oversimplification, but racism is alive and well in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't value people of color the way we value other people. It's true. Um, and I have um, a black son, and I see it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a white woman, so I there's no way I can understand it fully and how hard it must be and how probably on a daily basis, it must be, especially for uh, black and brown women who are sexually assaulted. I, I can, I, 
I can't imagine actually because I'm not in their shoes, but I, I definitely see the evidence of it and it, it pains me. It just pains me to see it. Me too. And I agree that we cannot fully grasp it. And yet it's all of our jobs to try, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. All right. You have any last thoughts? We covered a lot today. Yes. Um, anything that you didn't get to say? No, I've really enjoyed it once again. Thank you. Me too. It's yeah. been great. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and for your sharing your vast knowledge and <laughs> your empathy and understanding of all these really crucial issues. So, um, And also, I just want to say thank you so much for the admirable work that you do and how effective you've been advocating on behalf of children and fighting sexual abuse. And I feel like you're fighting for me and for so many people. So I, I just really want to say thank you. No, oh, thank you. It's, it's an honor to, uh, to do this work. And, you know, truth be told, it, it helps the little girl in me as well. But I really, I, I really believe in justice um, and I believe children should be heard and um, that we have a duty to protect them. So that's my mission. Well, brava. And I <laughs> second all of that. Thank so. you. Thanks. Thanks, okay. Catherine. Are you looking for one-on-one -on -one help as you navigate issues related to the second wound? I offer personal coaching services via phone, video chat, live texting, and even email. Together, we will determine your goals and work to make them a reality. These may include examining and understanding the family system you came from, advocating for yourself effectively, setting boundaries, developing better coping methods, and creating and maintaining a healthy support system. You can go to the coaching page at secondwound.com to see my rates and learn more about how my personal coaching services work, or email me at miranda at secondwound.com to get started. I get it, and I can help. Thank you for listening. Come back next episode to hear psychotherapist Barbara Heffernan, who's an expert in EMDR, and will tell us all about how it works and what to expect from this proven effective trauma treatment. If you like the podcast and want to support it, you can give me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and even easier, tell your friends. Thank you for listening and for all the support, everyone, and always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by my Canadian friend, David Boyle. Thank you, Adam, for still liking me after 70 days of quarantine together. <laughs>